0: and Chris, uh, pass the plates around. If you have a Bible, I invite you to open up with me to Nehemiah chapter 13. We've jumped right to the last chapter. We're going to wrap up our series this week. If you need a Bible, there are some some at the back there as as well. We spent, this will be week six in this book. We spent a couple weeks uh, really working through those first couple chapters, a little more verse by verse, and then we we jumped ahead uh, to chapter uh, eight, and now we're jumping ahead to to the last chapter in the book this week. And we we've, we've seen a lot of things, and I I I quizzed the first service, so I'm going to have to quiz you guys as well. I know that many of you have heard at least one or two of these sermons, so I'm expecting great things. And if you're watching online, type them in the chat, and I'll I'll grade you appropriately later. But there's one thing that I probably said at least three, maybe four times. If, if we don't get this from the book of Nehemiah, I, I think I've done a poor job of teaching it. Do you remember what that is? From Nehemiah and his example to us. Pray. I, you were here in the first service. You heard this, Brian. You guys are lucky you've got help in the back road there. Nehemiah was such, has been such a great example of, of praying first throughout this book, right? That, that's one of the key pieces of this. Now, we've also seen uh, God's faithfulness and, and God doing what He said He would promise to do. And, and we, we've tracked through this. Remember, the book opens, and, and Nehemiah is in a, a far-off land serving a, a foreign king uh, in in his court, in his castle. And, and he has this longing to come back and, and rebuild Jerusalem and rebuild the walls for the glory of his God. And and he knows, and he says, he Nehemiah understands the Scriptures enough to know that that God said to his people in the law, if you follow me, you will be good. Like, you'll be taken care of. I will continue to take care of you. I'll continue to pro- provide for you. I will do all these things. I promise I will do this. But God said, if you follow other gods, if you leave me and go after other gods, you will not go well for you. You will be uh, kicked out of this promised land that I've given you. And that's what happened, right? We can read the stories in, in Kings and Chronicles of, of, of the the evil that happened in Israel, and both Israel and Judah were were conquered and exiled. But Nehemiah also knew from the scriptures that if God's people turned back to him, they would bring them back into the promised land. God would bring his people back. And so we've we've seen Nehemiah highlight God's faithfulness to his promises through these chapters. And so he came back and, and he gathered the people and they, in the in the face of opposition, rebuilt the walls around the city. And remember the, the city of, of of Jerusalem was where the temple was and so it was kind of the hub of worship for for God's people and and when the temple was knocked down and the walls were down and the gates were burned it was a vulnerable city so it was as if they were telling the world our God is not strong enough to care for himself or us because he's been conquered but coming back to rebuild means no no God is, God is our God is strong our God is powerful look at Look at the, his glory displayed through our temple. All these, it, was, it was very much a message to the people. And so Nehemiah came back and had this building project, and we, we, we learned in about the middle of the book, around chapter 6, that in 52 days, the people rebuilt the wall. This was, a, this was a big deal. Let me ask you this. Have you ever had a project around the house or wherever else that just somehow didn't stay done? Anybody else? Thank you. There's a couple. There's a, only a couple in the first service. Too. Like, my projects are always done. Okay, okay all right. I, I was re- re- thinking about that this week, and I can think of, you know, some projects that I've worked on with my kids where we, where we build this thing or they build this thing, and I supervise, and, and it seems like it's done, and then they start playing with it, and something breaks, right? And it's like, okay, we've got to go back. We've got to start over. Or, you know, you've got this great thing drawn out on paper, and the theory is sound. Then you start to put it in practice and it's just like, no, we gotta go back to the drawing board on this one. Uh, for me, recently, another one that came to mind was you know, six weeks ago, two months ago or so, I, I was replacing the, the dryer vent on our dryer in our laundry room, you know, the tube that goes from the back of the machine up and out out the door. It was old, it just needed to be redone. So, uh, Naomi and the kids were away, so one weekend I got to, like, had my kid, I climbed up on top of the washer or the dryer, I got it all done, ran this tube and I done, finally. Probably even texted Naomi at the time. It's like, hey, guess what I finished today? You know, the dryer vent's brand new. It's 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 taped up. It's ready to go. It's it's running. I'm I'm doing laundry now, and it's fantastic. Well, a few weeks later, uh, I'm doing laundry again. I go down to the laundry, like it really smells like uh, like like wet clothes, like drying clothes for some reason. And I look into that corner, and my vent has fallen down. So my dryer is now venting warm drier air into the laundry room it's like oh this project okay so again I go back into the garage and I grab a couple things and I pull the stuff away from the wall and I crawl up on it and of course I don't know builders right like so of course the dryer vent is like there's a gap of about four inches between the last floor joist and the wall so I mean my hands can wiggle in some places but this it doesn't fit right so I'm wiggling in here and I'm hitting my head on the floor Joyce and it's it's going well it's going really well but I get it done I get it attached you know I guess what I fixed it it's good we're good to go I'm gonna finish my let's carry on well this week we go down and we're doing some laundry again and and fire up the dryer it's like I mean it's warm outside which warms the house man the laundry room's really warm for some reason and like like it's humid again and look into the corner and sure enough. the other end, it's its, it's at a, an elbow that it keeps coming apart, right? The other end of the elbow has now come apart. So back up to the garage, I go and get my things coming. It just wouldn't stay done. Now, I'm convinced that time three is probably going to be enough, right? But uh, some of these projects, they just don't seem done. Now, Nehemiah, he came to Jerusalem with a project to do. God had put it on his heart to restore the city, to restore the walls. And we—we we, again, we read that He checked these things off the list. He connected with the people. He got them involved. They rebuilt the wall in record time, 52 days. Then he started to remind them again with Ezra as well what it meant to worship their God. He was restoring the worship. This project seemed like it was coming along. And so as we come to the end of the book, there's there's a lot to be excited about when we get to the end of Nehemiah 10 and 11 and 12. The people have dedicated the walls, the completed project. They, they've had this celebration, this dedication in, in the middle of chapter 12. And, and as a part of this, there was a massive parade where they kind of went through the city to the far end, then divided into like marching band musical groups and marched around the city, some on the walls, some below the walls. And they met back at the temple. And there was this, this massive worship service at the temple because the walls were done. The temple was done. We can worship again. We God has shown us his favor We read that they rejoiced because God had given them great joy. It's a huge party. We read that as well, that the celebration could be heard far away. One of the things I love about Canmore in the summer is some of the festivals. We got down for Canada Day, and we got our spot on the the parade route. And I won't tell you that I went down the night before to put our uh, chairs down so we'd have a spot. I won't tell you that. Uh, But we sat down, we got there early, and we just watched the celebration start to come together, right? We sat in our chairs. I started at noon or whatever time it started at. We were there half an hour, 40 minutes early back at our chairs, and the people just started coming and just filling. And we, we were on the kind of the side road there, not Main Street, but where it turned. And you look down towards Main Street, and there was just a crowd. And people were pumped to be out and about. And then at about you know, noon noon is when it's supposed to start. So about quarter after, was Canmore time, was it starts to start around the corner. We can start to hear the drums beating, right? And the music coming. And we hear the floats coming by. We, we could hear this celebration coming blocks away. And we could hear it go by us blocks away. And it was just, it was a party. We could hear it echoing down. When, when Folk Fest comes, we will probably leave town. But when Folk Fest comes, from wherever you are in the city, you can hear music, right? It, it just kind of echoes around. This is the celebration they had. The, the people who lived in the area around Jerusalem knew that Jerusalem was partying and celebrating because they made so much noise. It was such a great celebration. And this celebration, these joy-filled parties remind us as well of of back in the book of Ezra when they dedicated the temple foundation and the altar and and they could worship again. And then when they finished the temple itself in Ezra chapter 6, these are just like, again, big, massive parties where the people celebrated. You know what? It would have been really great if the end of Nehemiah was at the end of chapter 12. It ended with a party that everything was good, that people were worshiping their God again, that the walls were firm again, that the temple was there again. That's that's maybe that's where we should cut it off, right? But the book doesn't wrap up there. There's another chapter, and I don't want to say unfortunately, but kind of unfortunately there is in Nehemiah thirteen. Sometime between the end of chapter 12 and chapter 13, Nehemiah has returned to serve in King Artaxerxes' court. Remember, he he had got a leave of absence to come and do his work in Jerusalem. And so he had to go back, and so he went back. He had spent, uh, we read, he had spent something like 12 years in Jerusalem as governor, but now he was back. And we don't know how long he was gone, but we read that after some time, he was given another kind of leave of absence to come back to Jerusalem and just sort of check on things. When he left, Things were going well, right? They just had this massive party. They dedicated the walls. Worship was happening. But when he returned, he found this city had had settled into a comfortable compromise with the Gentile world. This has always been the challenge for God's people. We read throughout the Bible, this is the the struggle for God's people. And it comes forward right to today that God's people are, are, are in the midst of the world, the people who don't yet know God, and that's good. But it's really easy to, to settle into a comfortable compromise with the world around us. See, the church has always, has always had a calling. And God's people have always been called to set themselves apart from the world. Not to remove ourselves from the world, but to be different to show the world a different way, to be distinct in how we live and how we understand the world around us and how we uh, do life. God's people are meant to show the world a better way and they're supposed to be separate. And the first three verses of chapter 13 tell us that. They remind us of that. Nehemiah quotes from Deuteronomy and and and, and people hear these words, the law, that they're supposed to be a distinct people, a separate people. And they hear this and they they repent. They 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 break down again because they have been letting the enemies of God into the assembly. We've had a couple other people groups mentioned in this book uh, that that are supposed to be separate. But they're they're right in the heart. They're in the, the midst even of the worship of God. And let me be, be really clear that the law doesn't say that Israel is to be separate and they should not be intermingling and especially intermarrying with other people groups because of race. Okay, race is pretty charged topic in our day. But when we look back at, at those days when God is calling the Israelites to, to be Israelites and not to marry other people or not to have their families intertwined with, with uh, Ammonites or ashtadites or Moabites or whoever else is, is, is named, it's not because of race. The thing is race was tied to who you worship. And so those who worshipped other gods We're not supposed to be a part of the people of God. You had to, you had to reject your foreign gods before you could be a part of the people of God. They were they were not even allowed to enter enter the area of the temple because they worshipped other gods. Now, how do we know that this isn't racism, but it's actually religious? Who again, a little Old Testament quiz here. Who was Ruth? We we walked through the book of Ruth a few weeks ago. Was she a Jew? No, she was not. She was a Moabite, right? But we read that she came back with Naomi and said, no, Naomi, your God will be my God. Your people will be my God. She rejected her Moabite religion and clung to the, the God of Israel. So that, that I mean, that's, that's a clear example. And we know that Ruth was, you know, a couple generations from King David, right? There are as well provisions in the law that says, you know, separate yourself for those who convert to Judaism. So this, this is re- a religious matter, not a racial matter. Yet throughout history, the church has so often fallen into a sense of complacency, which so often leads to compromise. And I think as, as many of us consider our lives and and the world that maybe we were born into, compared to the world that we grew up in, compared to the world we're in today, we can look at it, and we can see Compromise and how, in the in the West, the the foundation of, of Christianity and truth as, as part of how our culture works has just decayed over the years. As so I was thinking about this, I was reminded of the words of D. A. Carson, and, and it rings really true. He says, "One generation will believe the gospel. They've been they've been impacted by it. They've been changed by it. They've had an experience with the Holy Spirit, and they they've come to Jesus and they're passionate and they're zealous about their faith. And then." And then the next generation assumes the gospel, right? If my parents were, were fired up about Jesus, they took me to church, and, and so my parents took me to church, so we go to church. And, and, and if my parents didn't pass down that, that passion and that longing to be with Jesus, then I just kind of assumed, well, this is the way things are, because it's the way things are. But the following generation will deny the gospel. It's an interesting, and, and I, I think we can see that, right, in the last 60 years. One generation's passionate about it. And if, if it just becomes a thing that we do because it's a thing we do, it doesn't take long before we deny and we reject it because maybe there's something else. When we get complacent about how we follow God, about how we devote our, ourselves to Jesus, if we get complacent in our passion, our zeal, our fervor and our excitement about the gospel, it starts to leak. Our, our passion leaks out of us. And the next thing you know, you've wandered away from the lord and i again maybe this is just me but but i know that when my uh, my spiritual disciplines start to to waver a bit when i get kind of content and like you know what, me and god are good and uh, you know i, I miss a, a day of reading the bible or a couple of days of reading the bible i miss some time in prayer all of a sudden stuff from the world around me starts to creep in a little bit So this applies to us as individuals, but also as groups and cultures as well. So when Nehemiah returns to this city that's become a bit complacent, he finds things all out of sorts. The first thing he he comes to, the first thing he works on is the temple, is about verses 4 to 11 or so. I mean, the the whole book up to this point, and and Ezra before, it has been about rebuilding and purifying the temple and and re-engaging the worship of God the way it was supposed to be. but now he comes back, Nehemiah comes back to the temple and finds that that one of the priests, maybe even the high priest, has has taken one of the storerooms where all the elements of worship are supposed to be stored and gathered. He's emptied it out and he's sort of lent the room out. He's rented the space to a guy named Tobiah. Now, we're all good Bible readers here. Who is Tobiah? Where have you heard that name before? He's an enemy, right? When in the start of the book, in the first couple books, when when enemies of God's people are listed, this is one of them. And now he's moved himself into the temple. This This is nuts. Nehemiah comes back to find that this enemy is actually related to one of the priests. Here's the intermarrying thing. It's a problem showing up. And that the priest not only gave him some space, but he gave him a warehouse in the temple for Tobiah to just store his stuff. So what does he do? Nehemiah, what does he do? Verse 8. I think when verse 8 was written, it's probably toned down a little bit, the language here. He says, I was greatly displeased. I think that's pretty soft for what Nehemiah thought. I'm just, I mean, I'm i am just guessing. Because the next bit he says, what did he say? So I threw all of Tobiah's household possessions out of the room. Love it. I envision if this was a room in the temple and there was a window, stuff was flying out the window, right? Like this is, this is not just a, hey, listen, uh, I know that somebody lent you this space and and, I just want to keep you happy, but uh, we really need this space for something else. Could you please? No. He was upset. I think this, Nehemiah's zeal and emotion here should ring in our minds of Jesus coming into the temple with a whip and flipping tables 400 some years later, right? Get this enemy out of the temple. And then... Nehemiah finds that some of the portions and the supplies that that had been given to the temple to support the work of the temple workers, the the Levites and and the singers, they weren't being given to where they needed to go. This is how the temple was supposed to run. They, They collect some offerings so that people could be devoted, and their primary task was to make sure worship happened. But the Levites and the singers, they weren't getting those provisions, and so they had to leave the temple and go to work to provide for themselves, provide for their families. This This is a bad thing. Nehemiah says, you guys are neglecting the house of God in verse 11 because people aren't supplying the needs for the temple workers as they were. So Nehemiah cleans house. He cleanses the temple. The first thing he does when he comes back again because this project just doesn't stay done. The second thing Nehemiah found was that, that even obeying the law had started to be neglected. Again, we don't know how long it was from when the celebration happened in chapter 12 to when he comes back in, in 13, but they'd become lax in this too. Much of what we read through Ezra and Nehemiah was, 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 was Ezra himself as the priest kind of re-studying the scripture so that he could open it up and explain it to the people and draw them back into how they should worship, how they should know their God and what that should look like. And it's understandable that the people didn't know this. They'd been in exile for, for generations, right? There was probably no Bible studies in Babylon, so they needed to relearn these things. But when when Nehemiah comes back, he finds people working on the Sabbath. They're making wine on the Sabbath. There's something like a farmers' market taking place on the day that was supposed to be set aside for rest and worship. Other Israelites from from neighboring areas were bringing in their grain and their produce and their products to come in and sell, and they were they were buying fish and and supplies and other things from foreigners as well on the sabbath now for you and me this might seem like a bit of a minor issue because if i need milk today on the way home i'm going to swing by safely i'm going to pick up a couple of things we can have breakfast tomorrow but the idea of sabbath and the idea of sabbath keeping is really key to obeying god it's not like this command to to obey the sabbath is buried somewhere deep in in leviticus or deuteronomy and that people are just like tuned out by the time they get through all these rules to the Sabbath. It's one of the 10. Most of them could probably remember 10 rules. And one of them was keep the Sabbath holy. There's supposed to be a day set aside for rest. For recognizing that, you know what? We can take a break and God will still keep the world spinning. God doesn't need me to keep the world spinning on its axis. He, He can take care of that by himself. It's supposed to be a day to to be still and remember all the things that God has done for his people, all the promises he's made and promises he's kept. And it's supposed to be a day to celebrate community and the family of God. Nehemiah comes back and sees it's just rejected. And so he says to the people, what is this evil you're doing? This isn't a small thing. He says, you're profaning the Sabbath day. And he goes on and says, didn't your ancestors do the same so that our God brought all this disaster on us in the city? And and now you're rekindling his anger against Israel by profaning the Sabbath. He's saying, guys, we've just come back. Did you forget we were exiled? Did you forget the generations we spent in foreign lands under the thumb of foreign kings because we did exactly this? Do you want to go through all of that again? Just a couple of chapters earlier in Nehemiah, in chapter 10, the people had had promised with an oath not to do exactly this. They had rededicated their lives to the Lord, and they actually said, we will not buy and sell on the Sabbath. And here they are. Now, we might look back at this and think, man, Nehemiah, he's like pushing these rules. He's kind of turning these people into the legalists that Jesus got so mad at but it comes back to to understanding how the Sabbath was supposed to function, what it was supposed to be. One writer says this, the Sabbath was intended to be a protected space for Israel to meditate on the Bible and rehearse the mercies of God. They could set aside the stuff of daily life, meditate on scripture and rehearse and remind themselves of, of just how good God is and all that he's done. It says the Sabbath was for worship. The Sabbath was to be kept holy so people could enjoy their God. The the concern for maintaining the Sabbath isn't legalistic. The concern for the Sabbath is for the good of the people. It is good for us to rest. the The Sabbath is for people to know God. Now when we, even today, are tempted to fill our week so busy with so much stuff that we don't have time to rest, to Sabbath, there are consequences that come with that. It is to our detriment. It is not good for us to be going seven days a week, full time, full bore, all the things. I think the people here, and I think us as well, their, their problem was with being comfortable. In Nehemiah's day, the, the city had been rebuilt, the walls were done, stuff went back to normal, and they got used to normal once you're comfortable, you start to feel like you're in control, don't you? I'm, I can handle this. I'm getting through the week, no problem. Sure, there's some bumps in the road and some, some struggles, but you start to feel like you can do it on your own. Maybe you're, you, you studied hard for one test and realized, you know what, I think I got this course. I got it good. I'm, I'll be okay. And those study habits kind of wane from the midterm to the final, and your mark kind of goes with it. Can you remember a couple of those? Maybe uh, you put in the, the work to get promoted at work. You, you created good habits. You, you, you worked hard. You got things. You got that got that next step. And then you kind of let some of those good habits go because, well, I'm, I'm here. I've got this. Uh, the boss likes me, so maybe the next promotion is just around the corner. And those good habits that got you where you were, they start to fade. But maybe, maybe even you're, you, you feel like you're living your life in a good place yeah, and things are generally going well we've got some conflict, we've got some things to work on, but generally things are going okay. And so whether you'd express it in these words or not, you might start to think, you know what? I, I think I can handle this. Maybe you don't need to rely on God quite as much. And so some of those habits, some of those spiritual disciplines that got you to that place start to slide a little bit. You start to slip into a bit of complacency. Now if you were there, and I've had those seasons too, where it just started to slip into not like major compromise, but just the, you know the, the routines that really helped me connect with God, the habits that helped me connect with God, I've just kind of I've, I've skipped a couple of days or whatever. Let me tell you, it's, it's not good. Let me invite you to turn back, to repent, to come to Jesus and to rely on Him, to trust in Him and His word. It's amazing how many conversations i've had or or seen online or or however else where where it's really out of our our pride and and even our abundance where we as followers of jesus or people who call themselves christians really just let some things slide you know i i'm a christian but i you know i i go to church when i can get there i've got this other stuff going on you know i I like jesus i think we get along but i i'm in this season of life where i really need to invest here instead you know I, I think I think church is important that's uh, I'll go there Sundays but the rest of the week that's that's Sean's time anybody heard any of those maybe used any of those you don't have to raise your hand for used any of those and in those times I want say okay I I, I I understand your thinking I get it right I I may not agree with it but I get it so this what I want to say is show me where you find that in, in scripture though we, you find these compromises in the Bible. We, you say, no, Jesus is good if I just hang out with them on Sunday mornings. Show me that. Show me that in the Bible. <laughs> let me say this. It's a little um, firm, but I think sometimes we need firm. You and I, we are not smart enough. We don't know enough. And we were never meant to let our dependence on God's word slide. We can't. We cannot do it on our own so Nehemiah comes, he sees that this is happening, and he cleanses the temple. Sorry, he cleanses the temple, and he restores the Sabbath. And finally, he goes after the people again in the last section of this book. It's a really interesting uh, in this chapter to, to look at the way Nehemiah leads. Now if you pulled out your phone and went to your favorite Christian bookstore or Amazon or whatever and searched for, for commentaries on Nehemiah or Bible studies on the book of Nehemiah, so many of them would say, Great leadership principles from Nehemiah. Nehemiah, the great leader. How to lead like Nehemiah, all these things. And it's true. He did a great job. Yet, this last chapter looks a little different. Well, the first time he came, he, he prayed a ton. He fasted for many days to prepare himself. He got the people on board. He collected a group to, to, to raise up and do a, a seemingly impossible project in a short amount of time. But now he comes and he seems more angry, impulsive, and frustrated with people. In those early chapters, we have some really rich, eloquent prayers, especially that first prayer in chapter one. But here in this closing chapter, we see some of Nehemiah's prayers, and, and they're very different. In all three of them, he kind of just says, God, remember me for doing this. Remember that this happened. And there's one at the end where he says, God, remember their sin. Remember that they they, they dropped the ball. Don't let them get away with that. that that's, that's really different, isn't it? And then his frustration peaks when he turns to the people and once again still sees them intermarrying with non-Israelites. And again, I just want to be as clear as I can, this is not about race. This is about religion. Israel has a long, sordid past of of trying to integrate some foreign deities into their lives and worship. And he notices that because of this intermarrying, some of the kids are losing their their grasp of Hebrew, of the Hebrew language. Now, why do you think that's such a big deal? Help me out. The scriptures are writ- written in Hebrew. So if you lose the language, if, if from one generation to the next, you, you lose the ability to hear from God through his word, that's a big, big, big problem. But it goes even more beyond that. They will lose their identity as a separate people with their own language. They're, they will lose their way, if they can't read the scriptures, they'll lose their way to understand the world. And ultimately, they will lose their connection to God. So, one writer says this single generation's compromise could undo the work of centuries restoring the worship to Jerusalem. So, Nehemiah is upset. And it gets pretty intense. We read that he beat some of the men and he pulled out their hair and he made them swear an oath to God. Let me suggest, when we read the Bible, it's important to know when it was written and the context in which things were written and not just assume that that will directly translate today. So hear me, do not go into the streets of Canmore and start beating people and pulling out their hair, telling them to follow Jesus. That will not end well for the church, okay? Or you. But if this is a really f- kind of foreign concept and passage to us, isn't it? But some there, there's some thought that say what Nehemiah was doing here was actually some of the physical consequences based on the law itself. Remember, he's restoring the law. But they're they're dialed back a little bit. Being beaten as a consequence is better than being taken out back and stoned. Because lots of the, with rocks, lots of the consequences of the law were if you go after another god, the, the penalty is stoning, is death. So that's a little, bit. I wouldn't want to be beaten, but it's better than being dead. And as well, the, the, the pulling out of hair, or the pulling out of the beard, this, this was part of a kind of public shaming ritual. So it's not just he's, He's mad. He sees some beards and he yanks. He doesn't just go into the streets to find anyone, but these are specifically people who had committed to following the Lord, and now they're part of this sort of formal uh, ceremony, I guess you might want to call it. I'm not sure ceremony is the right word, but part of this formal ceremony where people were disciplined for their disobedience to the law. They shouldn't have known better. And then verse 25, it says that Nehemiah forced them to take an oath before God and said, you must not give your daughters in marriage to their sons or take their daughters as wives for your sons or for yourselves. And he gives a reason for this. Again, I'm not making this stuff up. It's in the text, right? Verse 26, he says, didn't King Solomon of Israel, you guys may have forgotten a lot of Israel's history over the generations, but you probably know Solomon, the greatest king in Israel. Didn't he sin like this? There was not a king like him among the nations. He was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. And yet, look what it says, foreign women drew him to sin. This is not a, against a, a gender thing. This is not against a, a race thing. This is foreign worship. He went after other gods. And we can see again just how big a problem this intermarrying had become in the next verse as, as he reads, or Nehemiah says, Even one of the sons of Jehoiada, son of the high priest, has become a son in law to Sanballat the Horonite. Help me out. Who's Sanballat? The other enemy. When there are enemies named in this book, there's two of them, usually Sanballat and Tobiah. And now we find both of them not just in and around the temple, but married into the high priest's family. This is a problem. I like what Nehemiah does. Says, so I drove Sanballat away. Love it. Get him out of there. Both of these guys had married into the, again, the family of the high priest. There's no indication that they had converted to Jeru- uh, Judaism. There's no indication that, that they were following Yahweh, the God of Israel. All we know is that they were enemies. They, they violently opposed the project, but now here they are right in the midst. And with them comes their religion, their God, and they're pulling the people away from their Lord. So Nehemiah drove Sanballat away. He had to cleanse the people. The project wasn't done. The temple, the word, and the people. This book wraps up with Nehemiah saying in verse 30, So I purified them. Purified them from everything foreign, and I assigned specific duties to each of the priests and Levites. He restored worship at the temple. He said, I also arranged for the donation of wood at the appointed times for the first fruits, and he says, Remember me, my God, with favor. He reset the temple and the people once again. It's interesting that, that as we started this book, we looked at him and said, one of his major projects, Nehemiah's major project was to come and rebuild the wall. That's what he asked to go do. That's what he was commissioned to go do. Remember, he got the letters to safely travel. He got permission to go to to this foreign king's storehouses to get get the wood, to get everything he needed. But his major accomplishment was this, restoring the worship in Jerusalem, not just rebuilding the wall. The book, it starts and finishes with Nehemiah praying. Again, a, a huge reminder to all of us to just Keep on praying, even when we think the work's done, and then it collapses, and then we got to go through it again, and keep on praying. the The end here seems really like kind of anticlimactic, right? We've just seen all this good stuff happen. We saw the celebration in chapter 12. Comes, Nehemiah comes back as a disaster. He restores it, and we're kind of left with this feeling like, I wonder how long this one will take. Starts out with so much hope. This section, Ezra and Nehemiah, the return from exile, the rebuilding of the temple, the rebuilding of the city, but it ends in disappointment with neglect of the temple, the Sabbath dishonored, and the law of the Lord uh, ignored. I think this book reminds us as well that as we continue to strive to build God's kingdom in our own lives, in our families, in the world around us as well, no matter how much we accomplish, There's still something missing for true and lasting change to really take and stick. There's a couple things. First, this story of Nehemiah points us forward to the hope uh, that the prophets saw, Jeremiah and Ezekiel especially, declaring what God would do. In Jeremiah 31, we read that that God tells us that he will bring a a new covenant. This promise, the the law of Moses, it, it was good, it served its place, but it pointed towards a new covenant. And Jeremiah promised that would come. And this new covenant would be one that was different from the one that Israel kept breaking. This new covenant involved God writing his law on our hearts. And Ezekiel promised that a day would come when, when God would, would, would give us a new heart, take out that, that heart of stone that just seems slow and, and hard and uncaring, and he would give us a, a heart of flesh and he would put his spirit inside of us. And this new covenant, this new heart, and God's spirit coming were all fulfilled when Jesus came. When Jesus came for the first time, he, he made this happen. And this is the gospel, that God will do everything needed for us to come back to him. And for us, all of our confidence and hope need to be in that, not in what we can do, but in Jesus' work. And we hope, as we've seen in this text, that God, who keeps his promises, we hope in the promise that, that Paul wrote in Philippians 1, that God is the one who, who started a good work in each one of us, and though His work in us is like, like Israel too, some days are good, some days we back off a little bit, some days are good. The One who began a good work in you, and will compa- will carry it on to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. Which brings us to the second realization that the ultimate and finally rebuild, final rebuilding and restoration, will only happen when Jesus returns again, and when He ushers in and establishes His eternal kingdom. Let me pray for us. Father God, thank you again for this morning, for this time uh, that we can be together. We can worship you through through being together, through singing together, through praying together, and through your word. And I pray that, uh, that you would continue to speak, that you would continue to draw us to you, that you would show us areas in our own lives, in our hearts, where we've become maybe maybe a little bit complacent, where we've got our, our priorities a little bit um, askew, perhaps. And thank you that 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 you don't reveal those things just to heil- to, to heap guilt and shame on us, but rather to, to to point them out so that we might repent and we might turn back to you, and you welcome us with open arms as we do that. Thank you, Jesus, for for your work on the cross for us so that we can be adopted sons and daughters in the kingdom of God. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.